0: All right, good morning, everyone. If you would uh, open your Bibles or navigate on your device to the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible, we're in chapter 7. We're going to look at that whole chapter. And whoa, we're going to be a few verses in chapter 14, too. Extra bonus look at chapter 14. So hold a finger there. Revelation chapter 7. The topic. The 144,000 are sealed by God to survive the tribulation while sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The title of our message, Seal Team 144,000. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful to be here this morning to sit under the teaching of your word with the Holy Spirit as our teacher. He says in this book over and over again, to the church, he that had ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says we as a church lord as a gathered body of believers we want to hear that and we want to hear individually what you want to say to us through this magnificent text it's of course about the future lord a future that we will behold from heaven that's not to say that it doesn't have application for us because it reveals your heart of grace and mercy but also your need to judge sin and so lord i pray that you would Be our guide. Come alongside of us and minister, Lord. We're not just here for head knowledge, not just for information, Lord. We're here for transformation. And so touch our hearts. Free us from addictions, Lord. Give us uh, grace from (coughs) life-dominating sins. Heal us, Lord, in every possible way by your grace and strength, by your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name, and those who agree, said, amen. amen. We love our military and civilian special forces. As Will Smith insightfully stated in Men in Black, they're the best of the best of the best, sir. God has a thing for special spiritual forces. Gideon was chosen to fight against an army of Midianites. He started with 32,000 Israeli soldiers, a formidable army. God said that was too many. He sent home 10,000. 22,000 was still too many, so God further whittled it down to an elite core of 300 men. Before he was king, David attracted a band of men, around 30 strong, who were called his mighty men. You can read about their exploits. Jesus had his original 12 disciples as an elite force, and in Luke's gospel, he appointed another group of 72 for a special assignment. Our text in the Revelation will present to us a very prominent special forces group in the future seven-year tribulation. They are the 144,000. We'll see that they are untouchable while they are tasked with preaching the gospel to everyone on the planet. We'll also see some of the result of their preaching by being introduced to another group, the tribulation martyrs as we look at both groups as an application to us we'll say that sometimes our testimony is best served by being kept through our trouble whereas at other times our testimony is best served by being taken by our trouble i'll organize my thoughts around those two points number one god may determine that your testimony is most powerful when you are kept through trouble or number two god may determine that your testimony is most powerful when you are taken by trouble let's take a look first of all at the hundred and forty four thousand who are kept through trouble we're in the tribulation in this text chapter six through eighteen of the revelation describe the future seven-year tribulation in detail it begins in heaven when jesus takes a seven sealed scroll from his father and opens the seals one by one he opened the first six seals in chapter six and we said that they span approximately the first three and one half years of this future time. Jesus will open the seventh seal in verse one of chapter eight. It will reveal a series of seven trumpets being blown. When the seventh trumpet is blown in chapter seven, or excuse me, chapter 11, a series of seven bowls full of the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth in chapter 16. Just as the seven seals take us through the first half of the tribulation, the trumpets and the bowls take us through the last half of the tribulation increasing in frequency and intensity as the days tick by. The chapters in between fill in the blanks. They let us know what is happening on the earth as a result of the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. In chapter seven and 14 then, we're gonna see events that span the tribulation. Some of them at the beginning, some during, some at the end giving us details about the 144,000 and about the men and women who they bring to faith in Jesus Christ. The story of the 144,000 inserted here is God's way of reminding us of his grace during the tribulation. He goes on reaching out to those who are perishing and millions are saved. As we saw last week, it's too easy to get caught up in all of the details of the tribulation, all of the terrible judgments and the explanations of them, and forget that they are a backdrop for God to give mankind one last opportunity to repent of their sin and to be saved for eternity. That's why we're calling this entire series, The Grace of Wrath. Yes, this is a time of the wrath of God being poured out on the planet, deservedly so, But it is a time of great grace as we see God raising up witnesses like the 144,000 and others that we will meet, reaching out to mankind one final time, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God is reaching out to you. He's not willing that you would perish. He wants you to come to eternal life. Now, verse one. Chapter seven, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, since all believers from this present age will have been suddenly and miraculously removed by the rapture, new witnesses must be raised up for the tribulation. How can we know these servants are sealed early in the tribulation? Well, the harm against the earth that is being held back in these verses can be associated with the blowing of the first trumpet. Since the first trumpet sounds after the seventh seal is open, these servants must be sealed sometimes before that, putting it in the first half of the tribulation. Furthermore, in chapter six, we saw tribulation martyrs as the fifth seal was opened. Since it's reasonable to assume the tribulation martyrs got saved, at least some of them, by the preaching of these sealed servants, they must have already been at work before the fifth seal was opened. So we know that these martyr or these tribulation uh, saints, these one hundred forty-four thousand, are active during the very early parts of. The tribulation sometime before the opening of the fifth seal, which is during those early days, they will be sealed and their sealing means that they will be supernaturally protected during the tribulation on the earth. They will be untouchable. They will be invincible. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 14, because there's still 144,000 of them at the end of the tribulation. Not one of them is lost. There's been much useless speculation throughout history as to the true identity of these who are sealed. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, claim that certain members of their cult are the true 144,000. Others teach that the English-speaking people of Europe are the 144,000, having descended from dispersed Jews who settled in Europe after the Assyrians conquered Israel. Sometimes they're called the 10 Lost Tribes. Others say that the term 144,000 is code for the church. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to know he's talking about the church. And so he calls them for some odd reason, the 144,000. Now we are told explicitly who they are. And and what's amazing to me about the book of the Revelation is when God wants you to really know something so that you don't get confused, he repeats it over and over. And and so listen to this. He says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And so here we learn that there are 12,000 each from the 12 tribes that are going to be listed of Jews living on the earth during the tribulation. And here it goes, verse five. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tri- of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, how many do you think were sealed? 12,000 were sealed. Now, you and I, we read those portions and we think, man, just get to it. But, you know, over and over and over again, and people read this and they say, I wonder who these guys are. <laughs> hmm, let's think about this for a minute. I wonder what that number really represents. When we get towards the end of the Revelation, we'll get to chapter 20, where the 1,000-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth is described. I think seven times in that chapter of just a few verses, it says that it's 1,000 years long. And people say, hmm, I wonder what is meant by that. I wonder how long the 1,000 years is. It must be a symbolic number. And so the thing is, you know, the Holy Spirit, he must be going crazy. In heaven, wondering why people can't just believe him. There are going to be 12,000 Jews from uh, each of these tribes listed. Now, some things to notice about this list in no particular order. First, both Joseph and his son Manasseh are mentioned, while Joseph's other son Ephraim is not. Second, the tribe of Dan is omitted altogether. And third, the tribe of Levi is included whose place in the Old Testament listings, along with Joseph's, is usually taken by Joseph's other two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, nowhere in the Bible is there any commentary on the particulars of this list of the tribes. Anything else that I or anyone else says is sheer speculation. Only God knows why these 12 tribes in this order, so we're not gonna speculate. Uh, But the important thing is we understand these are 12,000 physical descendants of Abraham from each of these 12 tribes. How do they get saved? Well, probably much the same as Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, was miraculously brought to faith on the road to Damascus. Now, people are always saved the same way. Uh, when um, people have a tendency to read when they're reading the Bible Old Testament then New Testament they think that there are different methods or ways of salvation some people mistakenly think in the Old Testament you were saved by keeping the law of Moses Uh, that's not true no one was ever saved by keeping the law because no one can keep the law uh, outside of Jesus Christ who kept it perfectly Uh, people are always saved the same way by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the old testament saints looked forward to the promise of the messiah we look back to the promise of the messiah on the cross we're all saved the same way and so these guys they're saved by grace through faith but obviously in a super miraculous way like paul the apostle on the road to damascus because it appears they're all saved at once and sealed and sent out on their mission you know some people also complain they say look this can't happen because no Jew knows his true genealogy today. Those genealogies have been lost, and so how can they uh, figure out who's going to be from which tribe? And I say to that, I know at least one person who knows what tribe every Jew is from, and that person would be God. He's not gonna have to consult any lists or find genealogies written in ancient tongues to figure out who is from the tribe of Naphtali. I mean, so that's just a silly thing for people to say. Sometimes these guys are called 144,000 Billy Grahams. Have you ever heard that? You probably have if you've been in church more than 10 minutes. Uh, people say that they're going to be like 144,000 Billy Grahams going all over the earth preaching the gospel. Well, actually, with no disrespect to Billy Graham, whom we respect, they are going to be like 144,000 Paul the Apostles. And that guy was mad, crazy about Jesus. I mean, you couldn't kill that guy. In fact, they did kill him once and they drug him out of the city after stoning him and while his companions were weeping over him God raised him from the dead. He dusted himself off and he says I want to go back in there and talk to those guys (laughs) His companion said we want to go get a hamburger. I mean, you know, so (laughs) let's let's go to the next city and maybe we'll fare better there And so this is going to be a fantastic special force of witnesses for Jesus Christ by the way, have you ever heard that the gospel must be preached to every creature before the Lord can return? That's some, you sometimes hear that as an uh, impetus for people. I hate to use the word impetus because I don't know what it means. But uh, as a, to propel people. It's the right word, though. It actually is. You know, I, I, as my college education coming through, but I have no idea what it means. Um, but anyway, it's, it's kind of to forward people with the gospel uh, and send out missionaries. When Jesus told his disciples, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come, he was describing gospel preaching that would take place after the resurrection and rapture of the church during the tribulation on the earth. Now, so we ought to be about the business of missions, of everywhere we go and going places, sharing Christ. But the whole world does not have to hear the gospel today before the Lord will resurrect and rapture the church. The whole world will hear the gospel in the tribulation through the 144,000 and other witnesses that we will see as this book unfolds. The 144,000 are going to be a big part of that campaign. How can we be sure? Because we read about them again in chapter 14, if you want to turn there and follow along. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And so John saw Jesus. He calls him the lamb. That's his favorite name for him in this book. Mount Zion is on the earth. This is an earthly scene. It is the second coming of Jesus at the end of the seven years. There, the 144,000 who we just met in chapter seven will be gathered to him and they will accompany him into the millennial kingdom on the earth. Don't overlook the fact that at the end of the tribulation, their number is intact. Not one of them was lost either to apostasy or to martyrdom. There's not you know, 3,999 of them, you know, and they can't find Moshe. You know, they, they, they're all there. Uh, Because they are miraculously preserved this by the way reads as if everyone can see their seal on their forehead I don't know that it makes a difference or not, but this is a visible marking Everyone will know who these guys are during the tribulation and afterwards you and I might have a bumper sticker on our car We might wear something with a cross or a fish. We might even get a tattoo about Jesus Even if we don't mark ourselves like that, we are said to be spiritually sealed with the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us as a promise God will keep us and that he will finish the work he has begun in us. We too could be described as marked men and women. We should always think of ourselves as representing the Lord. Let's remember that and conduct ourselves as befitting our Lord and our Father. In verse two, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder and I heard the voice of harpists playing their harps. Now, don't be alarmed. We showed you that harps are really the translation of a word that we would call guitars. They're a multi-stringed instrument like a guitar that was played with a pick. And so this is gonna be the greatest guitar jam of all time. Think of your top guitar players that you'd like to see play together and we are going to exceed that in a fantastic uh, chorus of just crazy guitars in heaven. And uh, it, it, I'm looking forward to that. No pianos, by the way, just guitars. Uh, these sounds coming from heaven are gonna be the soundtrack for the singing of verse three. But before we get to that, think about certain movies that you might love and you'll realize how important the soundtrack is. That, that it just, there's nothing like a great soundtrack to, to really set the mood and set the tone. And God has been preparing for a long time the proper soundtrack for the return of Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to be a part of it playing guitar. Verse three, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And we've seen these characters before the throne Before. The four living creatures are a type of angel whose joy and job it is to worship the Lord day and night. The elders are the church of Jesus Christ having been resurrected and raptured were safe in heaven prior to the tribulation. Now you might say don't the 144,000 need to be in heaven if they're singing before the throne and I would say I don't see why because whenever we sing Isn't it to God? Aren't we before him? Doesn't he hear it before his throne? I mean, when we worshiped this morning before the message and afterwards when we close in worship, you understand intuitively as a Christian that your singing is going beyond these walls and that it is in the presence of God, that he is receiving our praise, that he hears it, he tends to it, he's interested in it, he's enjoying it even. Uh, because he loves us and so uh, it, it doesn't prove that they are in heaven this is um uh not what's saying being said the hundred four thousand are on the earth with jesus on mount zion at his second coming and heaven is providing a live soundtrack for the song that they sing it's a new song uh, we've encountered this before god is preparing a lot of new music for the return of Jesus Christ. As for these 144,000, no one could learn that song except them. They were redeemed from the earth, saved by grace through faith, as is always the case, but it's clear they're a very distinct, very unique group among all those who are saved. Earlier in the revelation, we saw that the 24 elders had a special song that only they could sing. Now we're told that the 144,000 have a special song only they can sing. That at least tells us that uh, that the 144,000 are completely unique and distinct from the 24 elders. And so if the 24 elders is the church, which we showed you that it is, then the 144,000 cannot also be the church. They are exactly who the Holy Spirit says they are. 12,000 physical descendants of Abraham from each of the 12 tribes. It says in verse 14, These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. Now, the first part of this verse seems to describe their career on the earth during the tribulation while they're witnessing the fact that they were not defiled with women argues for their all being men. And as to sexual activity, they're said to be virgins. Why? Well, think about it. These guys are untouchable by the forces of evil, but that would not extend to a wife and a family they are therefore better off without those relationships in the tribulation nothing wrong with marriage or the institution of marriage not everyone who is spiritual is called to be celibate but there are obviously times that call for drastic measures and the tribulation will be one of those times and in order for you to be an on fire witness for god a sealed servant of god in those days Uh, As one of the 144,000, it's just going to be better for you that you are never been married and that you have the gift of celibacy so that all you can do is focus on witnessing for Christ around the world. And so that's what's being said there. Verse four goes on and it says, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the lamb. When you read that they follow the lamb wherever he goes, this is now looking forward to their work in the kingdom on the earth that Jesus will establish. It's not unusual in the Bible for a verse to split in half and be looking back at the, fu- at the past and forward to the future at the same time. It's clear that they are going to follow the Lord into his kingdom. Today, we would call them his posse. These guys are just gonna be hanging with him. It's quite a posse. I don't know what they're gonna drive or what, you know, probably not Hummers, I would guess, but uh, everywhere Jesus goes, he's going to be accompanied by the 144,000 with his father's seal on their forehead. It says they were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. The firstfruits are always the promise of the greater harvest. This is one hint that they definitely go about evangelizing because they are obviously saved. They're the firstfruits of multiples of others who will also be saved. Verse 5, and in their mouth was found no deceit for they are without fault before the throne of God. Of course you'd expect them to be without deceit or fault, so why point it out? Well, deceit can be translated lie. It's a word that can be associated with idols and idolatry. The reign of the Antichrist is characterized by lies and idolatry. In fact, we read in 2 Thessalonians there is something called the lie that people who follow the Antichrist will believe. There's some kind of sweeping lie that everybody buys into, and they begin to worship the Antichrist and uh, commit idolatry. The 144,000 never waver, there's no compromise at all in them. Not only do they all make it through to the end, they do so without ever being broken by the pressures exerted on them. It's, a, it's just a remarkable uh, group of guys. It says they're without fault, it could be translated without blemish. Jews would be familiar with the phrase as describing the quality of a sacrifice that was worthy of being brought to God. In order for your animal to be uh, used in a sacrifice, it was examined by the priest. It had to be without spot or blemish. So when your three legged cow was born, you didn't say, Wow, the Lord's cow was just born, you know? Or your useless, sick, you know, consumptive animal. Here, quick, before this animal dies, I offer it to the Lord. And we laugh at stuff like that, but you know some of the stuff people donate, don't you? Use tea bags, stuff that you wouldn't, you know, stuff that you wouldn't throw away. It's so bad. You just burn it on site, you know, and stuff. And people are, oh, hey, you know, this is for the Lord. Yeah, no, it's not. You're supposed to give your best to the Lord, but uh, so they'll be without blemish. They'll understand that, and so they're standing with the Lamb of God, who was without blemish in His sacrifice on the uh, cross. Are the 144,000 followers without blemish? We would say like lamb, like little lambs. It tells us that they will represent Jesus Christ on the earth. I said they'd be like 144,000 Paul the apostles. They'll also be like 144,000 Jesuses, as people see them in uh, their purity. They'll be like Jesus in the sense of uh, not having a, a wife, not having a family, being a virgin, those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of symbolism to the Jews. Of course, in Ephesians, we're told that we will also be without spot or blemish. It's God's great joy to perfect us over time on the earth and then all at once in eternity. I was thinking about this first service. You and I cannot even fathom what it would be like to be perfect. I mean, we think we, you know, we know, but I I don't think our minds are able to grasp. The the 10% of our minds that we use, uh, and some of us less, uh, uh, we just can't grasp what that's going to be like. And uh, we can see God transforming us over time, and we can see the progress he's making. Some of us, some of our chart is like you know the great depression you know and stuff but uh but we always we're going to come up on the upside and we're going to blow off the axis and be fully complete one day and perfect before the lord and i for one can't wait uh now these verses are strictly and holy about the one hundred and forty four thousand. they are not the church they are the special jewish evangelists that doesn't mean that we can't find an application you always have to be careful You have to know the context of Scripture so that you're not believing things or saying things that aren't true. But at the same time, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there are certain universal truths that we can glean. And one of them that I have in my heart this morning is simple but deep. And that is that God can preserve us without harm through trouble. And he will do that if that is what yields the most powerful testimony, because God is more interested in our testimony than he is our trouble. If that makes sense, uh, a good example of this, my favorite example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar erects a uh, an idol. Says everybody's going to bow down to my idol because I'm cool. And they said, Yeah, no way. And they stood above the rest. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. I'm going to turn it seven times hotter than it's ever been. The thing is going to be molten hot. You're going to burn. And they said, we are not afraid of you. Our God will preserve us or he won't. But either way, we're not going to bow to your idol. His guys throw these guys in the furnace. Some of Nebuchadnezzar's guys die from the heat. They burn up, throwing them in. After a little while, he looks in there and he sees four people. He says, didn't I throw three guys in the furnace? Now there's a fourth, and he looks like the son of God. And he finally gets them out of the furnace. They don't even smell like barbecue. I mean, they're they're completely, you know, fine because Jesus was with them in the furnace. He kept them through their trouble and delivered them through it and they gave a tremendous testimony which added to other testimonies that Nebuchadnezzar would get until he finally gets saved there's a whole chapter in Daniel where he gives his testimony and publishes it throughout his entire uh, kingdom and so our lives are sealed and Jesus wants to use them as a testimony and sometimes he will keep us through our trouble but other times Our testimony is most powerful when you're taken by trouble. And that's what we'll see as we go back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 9. The 144,000 bring the gospel to every nation, tribe, people, and tongue on the face of the earth. It's going to be a time of great spiritual harvest as innumerable multitudes believe the gospel and are saved. And so let's meet some of them the tribulation martyrs in verse nine, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's wonderful that God is no respecter of persons. People from every ethnicity and from all over the planet will be saved. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, there is nothing about you in your background that commends you to God or keeps you from God he sees everyone as equal it doesn't matter what race or nationality or uh, social class you're from doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done the Lord's gospel is for whosoever will believe they can be saved they were standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes this now is the throne in heaven white robes are the spiritual clothing of a believer When you trust Jesus Christ, he takes off your filthy garments of your own personal works of righteousness and he gives you his righteousness instead and you're clothed properly in heaven. Palm branches are in their hands, so it's Palm Sunday. Jesus is going to come forth from heaven and the kingdom will become a reality. What could have happened in his first coming after that Palm Sunday will happen in his second coming. Some commentators suggest, and I agree with them, that It may be during the Feast of Tabernacles on the calendar when Jesus returns. During tabernacles, Jews are instructed to build a temporary structure in which to eat their meals, to entertain guests, to relax, even to sleep. The tabernacles, or they're called booths sometimes, are reminiscent uh, reminiscent of the type of huts in which the ancient Israelites dwelt during their 40 years of wandering in the desert. Jesus fulfilled all the spring feasts in his first coming. He fulfilled them on the very calendar day that they occurred on the Jewish calendar. We took a look at that for our Christmas service back in 2014 and I'd encourage you to go to the website, listen to it or read it if you're interested in God's calendar. The fall feasts that have not been fulfilled by Jesus are trumpets and tabernacles, which would correspond to the tribulation, feast of trumpets, and the second coming, the feast of tabernacles, when God again tabernacles with men or lives with men. We should not set dates. And we don't. The rapture could happen at any moment. So how can you set a date for it? We don't even say around here that Jesus is coming soon anymore because soon is too far away for an imminent coming. Soon gives you the idea that you might be able to go home and have lunch. Imminent means I may not get through this sermon, which is what you've been praying for. But... uh, (laughs) So, we don't set dates. However, God is big into dates and calendar dates, and you can't avoid that. In fact, not only did Jesus fulfill all these feasts, except the last two, you can go even farther back. I mentioned Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That very day was calculated by the prophet Daniel in his book, the jews could have known the exact day their messiah would ride into jerusalem they just didn't do the math and so god does set dates and he sticks to them you say well i thought you know in the end times no one would know the exact hour that jesus would come back that's still true i think it's still going to be during what would have been the feast of tabernacles but maybe people won't know it because by the end of the tribulation man, stars are going to be falling out of the sky, the sun's going to be black, the moon's not going to shine. I don't think you'll be able to tell time very well at the end of the tribulation. The most popular song on the radio is going to be, does anybody really know what time it is? It's going to make a comeback. Maybe be a rap version of it because no one will know what time it is. It'll be terrible. Have you ever been in some kind of a crisis and, and, you know, even, even a car accident sometimes, a, a real bad accident, you lose track of time and you don't know what's going on and what's happening because you're sho- in shock. The whole world's going to be in shock. People are going to be, uh, most of the world's going to be dead. And so, but the Lord, the Lord knows what day it is on the Jewish calendar. And he's going to return during the feast. Now, so I'm not saying that the Lord is coming to rapture the church during tabernacles of 2015 because of the blood moon prophecies. No, that's too far away for me. The Lord could come right now. He may come, he may not during that time, but he could come right now. But I think he will come in his second coming during tabernacles. Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to God in the sense that it's only available as a gift from him. He owns it. He can give it to you and he wants to. On account of Jesus taking the place of the sacrificial lamb, we can receive salvation as God's gift. He did it for us. Verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All the angels will be there. We've said before that the elders are the church, the four living creatures. They're a type of angel, too. A few characteristics of God and Jesus are mentioned here. We might want to check our worship to be sure it has these elements. Our songs of praise should reveal God's glory, wisdom, honor, power, and might. They should be full of blessing and thanksgiving. Not every worship song is, you know, filled with worship, I I guess is the only way I would say that. Uh, We need to be a little bit careful. You probably have never noticed it, but... Every now and then, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then, our worship team, because they're so godly, and I mean it, they will change a word, a key word in a song uh, because it's just not true what the, what the writer actually penned or what they're saying, or it's not, it's not what the Bible actually teaches. And um, we don't have any qualms about doing that because we want to praise God for his glory, wisdom, honor, power, might, blessing, and thanksgiving. I remember years ago when I was at Calvary San Bernardino, our worship leader, a good friend of mine, uh, he uh, wanted to introduce the Amy Grant song, El Shaddai. Remember that song? El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El El Eliona Adonai. And uh, I said, yeah, that'd be great. We just need to know what the Hebrew words mean. He goes, it's Amy Grant. I go, well, all right. (laughs) I don't care. If I don't care who it is I want to know what the Hebrew words are. I want to know what I'm singing If I'm singing to the Lord And so he found out He grudgingly found out And uh, we put him in the bulletin So that people knew what they were singing So uh, I think it's important uh, You know if you're going to be praising God To be praising him with words that are accurate and true And that's what's going to happen obviously in heaven Verse 13 Then one of the elders answered Saying to me Who are these arrayed in white robes where did they come from? Well, John's not expecting this. I mean, he's, he's like, you know the, 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 uh, the elder is like a docent. He should be telling him what's going on. John says, well, I don't know. You know, sir, he says in verse 14. So he says to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Lamb's blood is a dye that turns your filthy garment white. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. With it, you stand clothed for eternity there's nothing you can do to be saved except believe in jesus christ that's all you need do because he's done all the work for you and notice it says here they come out of the great tribulation meaning we're right in saying this is a scene at the end of the tribulation they've come out of it it's over this is the end of the tribulation detail that we're being given the antichrist is given power it says in the bible to make war with the saints Those who come to Christ during the tribulation and to overcome and kill them. We've already seen their souls under the altar in heaven asking when they will be avenged. They're told they must wait until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And so now we're seeing the end of that promise. We're seeing the full number of tribulation saints who were martyred. It says in verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. The reward for serving God is always more service. As we get older in the Lord, there is no retirement, no slacking off. We should always be doing more and more, not less and less. Just the opposite of the way we're trained to think. And he who sits on the throne, verse 15, will dwell among them. The greatest reward of all is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ you have his presence now you and i individually and corporately if we're christians are the temple of his holy spirit if there's one key to the christian life it's knowing and then practicing the presence of god verse 16 they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore the sun shall not strike them nor any heat we're not really told when the tribulation martyrs receive their resurrection bodies but they will have been raised prior to the second coming because we know that when the lord returns in his second coming First Thessalonians says he returns with all his saints. Hunger and heat and thirst describe some of their previous sufferings during the tribulation. All of that will be over forever. Verse 17, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Although servants, they're also sheep, and Jesus will shepherd them, they will be completely satisfied both physically and emotionally. Living fountains of waters refers to their physical state You know, people often speak of and seek the fountain of youth. It's a, you know, there's a commercial right now. I'm thinking of this kind of funny where the guy finally finds the fountain of youth, but he's more interested in the lady's cell phone plan, I think, you know, and it's to show how important that is. But, um, you know, you don't want to find the fountain of youth and live forever. You want to be a Christian. It's like one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. This guy makes a deal with the devil to become Immortal nothing can kill him and so as the episode goes on he keeps trying to get killed in various different ways to experience greater and greater deaths i think at one point he lets himself get run over by a train but he lives through it and finally he's he's bored because he you know he he, and and he decides that he would like to be uh try the electric chair that's the only form of death that he hasn't tried so he murders somebody just some random person And he goes to trial, and and they sentence him to death in the electric chair. And as he's waiting to be killed by the electric chair, his attorney bursts in, and he says he has great news. He got him a stay of execution, and he got him life in prison instead. And so now the guy's going to have to live forever. So the moral of that story is, don't make any deals with the devil. Uh, But you already knew that. But uh, that's like the fact, you don't want to live forever in the state that you were born in. You want to live forever as a Christian in the presence of Jesus Christ. And you you don't want to find the fountain of youth. You want to have fountains of living water coming out of you. God will wipe away every tear, refers to their emotional state. More than just never crying again, God will heal every emotional wound and pain once for all. In my prayer this morning, I mentioned that if you're here hurting, God can heal you. He will totally and completely heal you in eternity. I can't say when or how he might heal you of wounds and scars you have now Uh, that is a gentle tender work of God in your life you need to know that he is able to get you through whatever it is you're going through but in heaven there will be no more tears you'll remember everything but you'll see it the way God sees it and you will not cry or even think about crying as much as the 144,000 are going to be kept from harm, the tribulation saints, the martyrs, will not be, their, their name gives it away, they're martyrs, and so you know that they're headed for trouble. This reminds me of the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, where the heroes in the first half were delivered from trouble. Daniel in the lion's den, stop the mouths of the lions. Wow, that's cool. And then you get into the second half of it, and people are persecuted being sawn in half how do you get on the a-list that's what i want to know i want to be an a-list hebrews 11 saint that's always how we pray as soon as trouble hits whether it's minor or major it's like lord deliver me from it i want to go to the doctor and have them reread my x-rays and find out that i was miraculously healed and you know what god can do that and he does do that if that's what's going to bring the greatest testimony but a lot of times he doesn't because that is what's gonna bring the greatest testimony as we face death and go th- uh, are taken literally by our trouble uh, the way Christians have been for centuries. In the book of Acts, James is arrested and beheaded. Peter is arrested and miraculously delivered from prison. Why? Only God knows, but both of them had a powerful testimony and eventually they both arrived at the same eternal destination Does the road matter that much when the destination is the same? Not in the long run that we are on as witnesses. Let's pray.